0: You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Jesus, sorry, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned, him, mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you um, have given us your word and by your spirit you speak to us through it. And I pray that you would give us soft hearts this morning to um, that, that, that what we hear, what we read in your word would make an impression on us and shape how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see our calling as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, in the church calendar, the um, month of November is a is a month of remembering. At the start, we have the kind of twin festivals of All Saints and All Souls, for which this church is named, and uh, when we remember those who have gone before, particularly those who have died in the faith. And then, of course, um, today we mark with people around the world Remembrance Sunday. Uh, its roots set in the early days of peace following the great war, the war to end all wars as it was called. And the origins of the the poppy as a symbol of remembrance uh, lie in the poem by Canadian poet and soldier, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John McCrae in Flanders Field, which he wrote while serving as a battlefield surgeon during the second battle of Ypres in 1915. And also the response to it written by American humanitarian Moina Michael, who uh, first, I think, wrote of her idea of wearing a poppy as an act of commemoration. And we all remember things in different ways. We all commemorate differently. And this morning we're looking at the story of the first Christian martyr, uh, the first person killed specifically for testifying to, uh, witnessing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born, lived and died and rose so that we might live. And we'll talk a little bit about how and why Christians uh, remember those saints of old. Um, But the bottom line is this. We remember not simply because of what is lost is precious and loved. Of course, we do that. We remember dates. We remember the people who are special to us who are no longer with us. But we also remember specifically as the church in order to be inspired for our lives today and tomorrow. We look back in order to look forward. on Remembrance Sunday, that might be as people hoped that by remembering the horrors of war and those who made the ultimate sacrifice, that we might never allow ourselves to make the same mistakes again, counting human lives so cheaply. Sadly, it hasn't worked out that way. But for Christians too, and for the early church, they found in their mourning of Stephen inspiration to give it all, everything they had and were, for Jesus. But how did we get here? Because over the past couple of weeks, you know, we were introduced to this guy, Stephen, and and his was a a good news story. Uh, It was a really good news story. And Because we needed to bring this series to a close this week, in fact, we started this series back in May, we've been looking at acts kind of on and off since then, Um, but we've skipped a fair chunk of the story in order to finish today. And suddenly we find ourselves reading about uh, Stephen stoning and death. And so we need to look briefly at what we've missed to understand the role of this kind of horrific account in bringing uh, to a close, if you like, that first act of the story of the early church in Luke's account. So before we do that, in case you haven't been with us on this journey, if you, um, you know, first of all, where have you been? Um, No, only joking. It's great to have you with us today. Um, And if you're interested, you can always go back and you can um, catch up uh, by searching All Souls St. Margaret's on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. I don't think we're on Google just yet, but we're working on it. But this series has been called Gathered. Uh, what is the church for? And we've been looking at the first part of the book of Acts, uh, but, but looking at the story through the lens of the circumstances we find ourselves in today, and we're asking, what can we learn from their story about our story? And obviously, there's a, a huge difference between the church 2,000 years ago in a far-off land and culture, uh, starting from ground zero, building this new kind of temple made of people, not stones, and us today, with 2,000 years of church history behind us. But we're in a time that I I think it's essential for the church to be getting back to basics and understanding what we're here for, what it's all about. And I could get lost in revision, I do like a good recap, but this morning I just want to rewind to one verse in chapter one, and it's this. This is Jesus speaking to the twelve. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. The Greek uh, word is martyrs, It's where we get the word martyr. It means um, a witness to something or someone in uh, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So just before leaving them, uh, the risen Jesus sets out this, let's face it, rather optimistic plan to take his message global. I mean, the odds weren't good for a guy in his thirties who'd been killed by his own people, then deserted by his students when the going got tough. You wouldn't have put money on this group making it through to the end of the week, let alone the ends of the earth. But this is the plan, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, these kind of concentric circles of growth. And even the first stages would have seemed pretty unlikely to this group, you know, a group of Jews for whom Jerusalem was everything, the home of God's people. Why would they ever want to go to Samaria, their hated neighbor, with good news? You know, in his gospel, uh, Luke tells a story of Jesus and his disciples passing through Samaria, through this Samaritan village. And some of the disciples want to call down fire on it. And Jesus has to take them to one side and say that they've totally missed the point. The Jews were to be a light to all peoples, starting with Judea and Samaria. So from there, we've seen the believers, the the gathered, which is the literal translation of the word the Bible translates as church. They start small, they're waiting for the spirit, they're meeting together to worship and to pray and to eat. And then on the day of Pentecost, the spirit comes and just transforms them completely. And through their preaching and miraculous signs, healing like Jesus, doing what he did, many are added to their number. And they start to become this multi-ethnic movement. We looked at some of the challenges thrown up by those developments. And they start to encounter opposition, specifically from the religious leaders of Sanhedrin, the same people uh, who executed Jesus. Jesus. So today's instalment, the climax to our story, is about somebody being murdered for declaring Jesus to be king. And, uh, you know, that's not really our experience, is it? It's not something that we consider a likely outcome in this country. Of course, it is for millions of Christians around the world. So Stephen, we met as one of these uh, Hellenist Jews, foreigners in one respect, chosen by the church, to ensure the fair distribution of food to the vulnerable in the growing church. And last week we heard Rachel Bedford uh, talk about how Stephen was a man of grace and of wisdom, um, wisdom of the spirit. And what happens next is that along with waiting the table, Stephen is proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of Jesus, just like Peter and John were, and the religious leaders uh, don't like it. So they pick a fight and they start questioning him. But in chapter 6, verse 10, they can't stand up against the wisdom the spirit gives him as he speaks. And so, unable to beat him, they play dirty. They make up false accusations. And, uh, and Stephen ends up in front of the Sanhedrin. Whereupon he takes the religious leaders to school on the checkered history of Israel's relationship with God and his messengers. And he doesn't hold back. Which brings us to our reading. I'm just thinking, we're getting a click on this, aren't we? We had this last week as well. Would it be better if I just take a handheld? We put up with the click. You can't hear the click. Okay, you can't. Um, maybe it's just in my head. Never mind. Um, this is Stephen, verse 51 of um, chapter seven. You stiff-necked people. That's a phrase that God uses for his people in the Old Testament when he's not happy with them. Um, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Uh, They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, i.e. Jesus. Stephen's, Stephen's saying, you're doing it all again. You're rejecting God's messengers just like you always do. I wonder if Stephen knew that he was writing his own death sentence when he spoke those words. He's about to join that long line of prophets that God's people have murdered. The first follower of Jesus. And Sanhedrin are spitting, they're ready to lynch him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, has this vision of of heaven peeled back and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, which he shares with them. And that lights the fuse. They rush at him and they drag him off and they begin to throw stones at him. And there are um, many stories, commentators say, um, of Jewish martyrs uh, around the centuries, uh, sort of the, during the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth. And in the tradition, the, um, those being killed are recorded as kind of valiantly calling down curses on their executioners, saying, you're doing this to me, worse is going to happen to you. A kind of prophetic voice, if you like. But not Stephen. He falls on his knees and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoing, of course, Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So Stephen becomes like Jesus, pleading mercy for those throwing the hatred and the rocks. Talking about loving your enemies. This is life and death in Jesus' kingdom. And like Jesus, he offers up his spirit and he dies. And we see um, Saul approving of the killing, and that's the start of another whole story. That's uh, the next part of Acts, so do go and read on. Um, 8 verse 1. On that day, a great persecution uh, broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, that's the 12, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria the ends of the earth. So through this horrific act, the church is scattered into the very regions that Jesus outlined for the spread of the gospel. And verse 4, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. So this murder and the persecution which follows it launches the church onto a, the next stage of its mission. Jesus' commission in Acts eight is fulfilled. So what can we take away from this? I think there are a few things that stand out. Um, First, it's becoming clear that being faithful to Jesus is not about a comfortable life. There was a historic perception of the church in this country, I think over recent centuries, of being a kind of benevolent, if at times irrelevant, institution. Certainly not something that's very disruptive. But that's clearly not what the church is about in Acts. It's a subversive, prophetic movement on the fringes that provokes opposition on account of its radical message and choice to live like Jesus. We should keep that in mind. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't a recipe for a comfortable life. Second, however, um, this doesn't mean that Christians should get some sort of masochistic enjoyment out of persecution. Eight verse two, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. This was devastating for them. Suffering and grief are real. Part of the Christian experience of suffering. And I wonder what this taste of shock and grief did to those first followers of Jesus. You know, the story so far had been one of God acting powerfully among them. They were growing rapidly. They were modeling this new, beautiful way of being community that we've read about. They must have felt unstoppable. Unstoppable. Have they expected it always to be like this? Well, Jesus said that it wouldn't, but I'm not sure that would have made it any easier. Soldiers in conflict speak of the moment when a comrade is killed for the first time and how it affects their own perspective. They say that they never expected to make it through the war without losses, but when it happens, it comes home in a whole new way. And I think from this moment, no one in the early church could have held the illusion that success equals comfort. Not in Jesus' kingdom anyway, not for a people following a rabbi whose first criterion of being his apprentice was to take up your cross and follow me. There could have been no half-hearted followers in the church from this point. And as we've seen, the suffering was then a, a springboard uh, to fulfilling the mission of Jesus to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptising and teaching them to obey everything he commanded them, assured of his presence with them. This is how Jesus signs off in Matthew's gospel. So we have to remember this when life gets hard. Suffering is not a sign that God's favour is lacking. Jesus said to his followers in this world, you will have trouble. Christians suffer, Christians Get sick and die, Christians experience heartbreak and betrayal and disappointment and apparent failure. In this world, you will have trouble, says Jesus, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Like those first disciples and Stephen, as the rocks rain down, we have a hope beyond the suffering, beyond these troubles. So we remember and we mourn and we look to what's ahead because Jesus rose, so so will we. We all remember and commemorate in different ways. In the Eastern Church, um, icons are used to inspire worship. And it's a practice that the Western Church largely rejected, but its roots come from a surprising source. In the first century AD, people were buried with a portrait of their face placed on top of the coffin. And uh, the early church Christians, they were unable to display overt Christian symbolism. So they couldn't sort of hang up a cross in their house like we might today. So instead, the first Christians took to removing these portraits and hanging them in their houses as inspiration to live faithfully Jesus. By looking at them, they were reminded of people like Stephen. This is an icon of Stephen. Who had given everything for Jesus. You could say that they kind of perform the same sort of purpose as the poppy does for us today, lest we forget. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, who was um, present, you know, as we read at the stoning of Stephen. He sets out to destroy the church. He's now a passionate follower of Jesus. And this same man writes that one day we will all appear before our Lord and everything we have done for his kingdom will become apparent. We will stand with the great saints, the missionaries and the martyrs like Stephen. You realise that? We will stand alongside them, saved by grace, not by anything we've done, But how we have used what was given to us in this life will become clear. Jesus has called some people to die for him. But he calls everyone to live for him. And that's something for me, it's something for all of us to reflect on as we consider our giving and how we use not just our money, but as Phil said, our time, our energy, our attention. We will stand alongside Stephen. Now, last week, um, Rachel uh, beautifully summarized this story of Acts 1-7 to with the word together. It's a story about the first disciples being together. I hadn't actually told her that this series was called Gathered. And today, we read about that gathered community, seeing their togetherness shattered. And they were scattered, Acts 8 says. But the remarkable thing was that through this scattering, the word spread as more and more people heard the good news and became disciples of Jesus. And the scattered, they gathered. They came together in uh, cities and towns and villages, groups of people doing life together, working out what it looks like to be together with Jesus, to become like him, to do what he did in their context and culture. And so this is our calling today as the church of all souls, to do life together as disciples of the one who loves us and has purposes and callings over our lives, to figure out what it looks like to live for him today. This is what the church is for. This is why we gather. This is why we remember. So let's pray.